Hello and welcome to Media Literate, a collaborative podcast about shoving all our problems deep, deep down and just pretending like everything's fine for a while. Laura and I have had a really, really great week. Uh, (laughs) Don't worry about us. This intro is totally not indicative of any of our anxiety levels. It is, it is not. And you know what? This episode is going to be awesome. Uh, Not only because we have a brand new guest on our show today, we're going to have our friend and classmate Brian Smith on for a little bit of industry talk, but also it's awesome because we already recorded it. So no matter how insane we sound during, uh, during this section, we'll sound slightly less insane during the actual podcast. So don't worry. Yeah, yeah, the energy levels have, um, we, we already expended all of our cool, calm, and collected thought processes <laughs> on a really excellent conversation about streaming versus studio, mm-hmm. yada, 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 yada. Uh-huh. Can't even remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so we're going to be looking at the past year and some of the big film industry decisions that were made because of COVID, what their impact was, what that means for the future of entertainment uh, as a business and for movie theaters. But first, we have all, all of us, have been waiting with bated breath to hear about what film Kim watched last week. Everyone, this is Kim Fodder. Woo! Do you think they put in a um, like a sound cue in there, or is it I hope they I hope they do, and then it's awkwardly our fake air horns. Um, yeah, both both of <laughs> So, Laura, we've talked often about um, the uh, the how cannon fodder is not just about your average white dude canon it's mm-hmm. not it's not just your uh, scorsese's your coppola's your um uh, your christopher nolan's you might say thomas if, uh... all thomas anderson's etc etc your he who must not be named uh all of them it's it's about multiple different kinds of canon and last week we were talking about queer representation and i was like i want to watch a queer canon film but i i'm I'm not great on queer canon. Like I haven't watched all of them, but mm-hmm. I've definitely watched more. What my like biggest gap is in the like 90s black Hollywood canon. Mm-hmm. I really, mm-hmm. really have not watched a lot of those movies. And for a very specific reason, <laughs> um, a couple of very specific reasons. A lot of them are like crime movies or gang movies mm-hmm. or like heist movies. And I like was never particularly into it. And also Fun fact about Kim's mental health. Uh, my second ever depressive episode happened when I was in the fourth grade after watching Step Up, uh, when <laughs> the uh, like in the background bad guy uh-huh. who, like steals cars or whatever shoots Skinny, Channing Tatum's best friend's little brother, in a drive-by shooting after Skinny steals the bad guy's car to try and prove himself like manly enough to Channing Tatum, his black best friend. Yeah, it's really, it was really, really traumatizing. And my mom sent me to the school psychiatrist after two weeks of me just like being clearly very upset. (laughs) Um, 
So I don't watch a lot of movies that are potentially sad and a lot of like the sort of 90s black canon, unless they're like amazing comedies are also potentially sad. Mm -hmm. Your Boys in the Hood, Your Menace to Societies, Mm -hmm. which I will watch after this one because this week I watched Set It Off, a film that I have been feeling very, very bad about not seeing (laughs) for a really long time. And I'm here to tell you it is worth it. It is sad eventually (laughs) but it's also great um it's one of those movies that does give me a lot of anxiety because you know from the beginning that it's like this is not gonna work out for Mm -hmm. these people and watching a movie where you know from the start it's like this will end badly is um hard for my chest like it hurts Mm -hmm. on the inside Uh, but here are some really incredible reasons to watch this yes one Vivica A. Fox. I did not know that she was uh, such a bad bitch. Like I, I've seen her, I saw her in Independence Day and I think mm-hmm. that's her Independence Day and the uh, really bad Batman movie by Schumacher. Uh, oh, uh, um, Batman and Robin? Yeah, she's, she was... it's like, yeah, yeah. The one with Two-Face where Two-Face is like, I oh, have two Batman girlfriends. Forever. One is secretly yeah. Drew Barrymore. Yeah, Batman, Batman Forever. Forever yeah. Classic. And then, so she's like sweet. And then the other one's Spice or like whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. like very sexist. But she's <laughs> so incredible in this film. She's mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. All of the performances kill it. Um, mm-hmm. Jada Pinkett, Jada Pinkett, yeah. full nice. stop at the time, uh, was incredible. She, she sort of like holds it down as the... Um, not quite the emotional core, but the reasonable person. Mm-hmm. She's the straight man of the group, yeah. whereas uh, Vivica A. Fox is the like woman scorned who loses her job after a bank robber, a bank robbery, and the people at the bank are like, "Hey, you live in the same like project as this guy, right?" And she was like, "Yeah, but he shot someone in front mm-hmm. of me." And they were like, "Yeah, but maybe you were involved, so they fire her." So she's like kind of a wild card. Queen Latifah, who. Oh my God, fucking queer icon. Yeah. Uh, oh. Is just being a real, like, also an out lesbian in a 90s black film that I did not expect to see. I thought they were just going to be like, you know, she's manly. No, she got a girlfriend. Yeah. And make that on screen. And it's not necessarily icky, at least the first time. <laughs> so thanks, F. Gary Gray. Uh, you know what? It was the nineties. It's the, just it like was, it's. It was yeah. really hard to. It's it's really good representation for the nineties. Yeah. Um, so those are like the the highlights. Also, peak nineties. My mm-hmm. lord. Also, peak nineties L.A. Where you've got like the the cars that go up on the like high rise wheels uh-huh. or whatever. Like everything is like every outfit so 90s just the like the quality the screen quality like the quality of image the lighting it's all like so 90s LA it really puts you in the moment and there's also a lot of beauty there there was Mm -hmm. a moment where I was like oh this was definitely directed by like a USC alum (laughs) because there's this one point where they're sort of planning what they're gonna do next right and they're all sitting at a table at this like hotel that they clean in this big conference room and Vivica A. Fox does like she has um cotton balls stuffed in her cheeks and she does an impression of Don Corleone from the first Godfather mm-hmm. and they're like doing a Godfather bit for like way longer than is necessary <laughs> and it was just like within a lot of the black trauma which is like the sort of 
big buzzword, but also a very reasonable thing to be discussing of like why is so much of Black cinema so traumatic, especially right now. Mm. This is a traumatic movie, mm-hmm. but within all of the Black trauma, there is also a lot of like joy and focus on female friendship and what it means to maintain a female friendship when your life is like under constant strain from poverty and from like misogynist forces and like how they create these moments of levity within this situation that is like structured already as a tragedy there's a Mm -hmm. moment where Queen Latifah basically is like yeah I don't have a five-year plan right I don't plan like I it's essentially like a I'm here for a good time not a long time moment Mm -hmm. um so highly recommend this film it deserves its place in the canon um and I'd say like even beyond the like 90s black canon it is one of like easily the better like 90s heist slash action slash gangster movies that I have ever seen um so really really strong endorsement if you are avoiding it because it's sad it's worth it anyways I, 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 does this gonna open Hashtag up a whole butter. new, a whole new, just like world of sad movies for you? Because there are some good ones. Maybe. Know? Yeah. Maybe I can do it now. I had to watch it like I was uh, folding my laundry at the time. Like I did have to watch it with a certain amount of emotional distance mm-hmm. because, despite yeah. the fact that I am a full decade and a half older than I was when I saw <laughs> uh, Step Up. I I have a really strong avoidance tendency toward those movies. I'm like, oh, get to it. <laughs> After I watch Seth Meyers' YouTube videos for five hours. <laughs> Truly my favorite content. Uh, if there are any listeners who are internet savvy, I would like to recommend that you start the hashtag trending uh, Samber Muffin. Speaking of ships from last week, Seth Meyers and Amber Ruffin. <laughs> They just have a chemistry. It's palpable. You could cut it with a knife. Anyways, this has been Cannon Fodder. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good transition while you're going on about Sam Muffin, but I just, I can't think of one. I um, I need, um, I need yeah. a good closer, you know? I'm looking for a good closer. Oh, you do? Uh-huh. Wait, who is the, who, who is the star of The Closer again? Oh, that, that teen, that TNT show. Oh. Yeah, the yeah, composer. weeknights at yeah seven six central. Uh, what was her name? Kira Segway. Yeah, Kira Segway. That was yep, it. That was it. And welcome back. And we are here with the wonderful Brian Smith, who's here to talk with us about what's in the future for the film industry after a year of. Uh, I hate to use this word because it sounds so corporate-y, but after a year of disruption because of COVID, um, Brian, why don't you introduce yourself to the viewer, viewers, listeners, whatever. Thank you, Laura. Uh, hello, listeners or listener. Hi, Brian. <laughs> listener. <Thank you. laughs> I am Brian Smith, um, a current second year grad at the University of Southern California with my peers, Kim Henry and Laura Roman. Um, I'm very excited to be here um, and have this conversation basically about where in the world our film industry is going here in the States. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah. Actually, the first podcast that I recorded in grad school, I used to do a lot in undergrad, but I was very much like abandoning the practice. And then Brian was like, I'm going to do a podcast for the final for this one class. And I was like, hi, Mm-hmm. Can I can I do that too? That sounds like fun. I just want to talk to you. I will not be graded for this. <laughs> That's that true. Wonderful. He might be the most important person that we've ever had involved in this podcast. Yeah, I don't know. you kick he... this off. How's it? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay, so <laughs> no pressure. Basically, we're going to be looking back on some of the big industry events of the year and what kind of shifts we're starting to see. Um, and the ways media is produced and distributed and consumed. So uh, if I may rewind us a year and a few months, because don't you want to remember this time period? Uh, it's yes. I want like a sound cue uh, here of the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's spring of 2020. The birds are in the air, the flowers are blooming, COVID happens and we're all really, really sad. Um, movie theaters start shutting down. And uh, on April 10th, Universal announces it's going to be releasing Trolls World Tour on uh, premium on demand, uh, we call PVOD. So uh, I'm wondering, do you remember this event? Do you remember what people were talking about? What were your thoughts at the time and now? And Well, in the midst of my um, crippling depression, <laughs> Um, <laughs> Yay, COVID sadness. <laughs> yes, having in the second semester of my undergrad at Oberlin College um, and having to graduate from my living room, I do vaguely uh, <laughs> hearing some whispers around this. And even then, it was it was a very interesting conversation around sort of what does premiering look like um, when people are not allowed to go in theaters? Mm-hmm. How are the studios going to make their money? How are theaters going to make money? Are theaters going to be a thing in the future? Um, so these were these questions that were bubbling up to the surface um, when all of this first started to happen in this year of the famous quote of um, uncertainty and these <laughs> unprecedented times and things like that. Um, you know certainly highlighted some anxieties that had been there mm-hmm. as a sort of American cultural phenomenon. Um, but then COVID happened and everyone was just like, how do we make money? Mm-hmm. Oh, let's stream. And sort of uh, really took advantage of a lot of the gray areas of where streaming currently resides. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Um, yeah, no, I mean, this was a weird time, especially like, Thank you for reminding me of my crippling depression yeah. at the time, Brian. That was yeah. so cool. I was uh, I was just like tolling, tolling, trolling. No, I'm just thinking about the movie we're about to talk about. Um, toiling away in a grocery store and had like just heard that I was going to come to USC for grad school and I was like so excited and then the pandemic happened and everything was awful. But one of the really interesting things about Trolls World Tour as like a neon CGI sparkle glitter fest that is like just for kids basically, is when we started talking about like the impact of the pandemic, when people think about like the impact on Hollywood or the impact on cinema, like I feel like a lot of people immediately go to the Oscars or to like Mm -hmm. the like prestige films. They're like, what are we gonna do about Mission Impossible? And what folks don't realize is that like children's cinema is 
nearly the backbone of like the economic part of Hollywood because you know you have a Mission Impossible movie maybe take a date right kids every like the American household has what an average of 2.5 kids right so and they want popcorn they want candy they want all the stuff so they are like really really driving a lot of the money so when Trolls World Tour came out on PBOD I was like oh, whatever. And then I thought about it for about 0.5 seconds. And I was like, oh no. Yeah. And then <laughs> news came out later that this was like the biggest online release ever. <laughs> like it was massive. It made a so much money. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, like I, I'm a terrible at researching, especially when I'm in the position of the clipper, but like, do you guys know what the impact was? Well, I can say, well, for one, it certainly makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. If you're thinking about, if you have two kids, two and a half kids, or three and a half, whatever, you have half a child. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know what I mean? Um, It it makes sense that it does well at home, right? Because the theaters are expensive, right? It's much cheaper to go ahead and buy or rent something online, put it on the TV in the living room, instead of going and buying for the tickets at the theater and then all the concessions and, right. and things like that. And said it had this huge, huge release. And the impact of that uh, was, you know, Universal putting that on streaming, saying we're premiering this streaming online. Um, theaters didn't like that. Oh, boy, did they not, yeah. Right, because it goes against the traditional business model of how sort of films are distributed and how everybody gets their money. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, that model is a studio makes a movie it negotiates with different countries and regions and theaters for you know when they're going to release it for how much and all this different percentage breakdown um the theaters get a cut studios get their money whatever actors or directors negotiated what you know in terms of back-end pay and stuff like that that's how everybody sort of gets their money when you send it straight to streaming and you cut out the theaters, um, you essentially are screwing over a sort of monumental portion of of that sort of economic industry um, Mm -hmm. where they're like, okay, well, you sort of left us out to dry. Like, how are we gonna make money? You're not really supporting us and everybody's sort of thinking of themselves. And so that's when you get AMC theaters saying that we will never play (laughs) another universal movie ever again, not stand this yes. profound disrespect <laughs> that you just stream this at home instead of like releasing it to us in theaters in a global pandemic, the kids <laughs> could ask. Um, so that, that was the impact. And then set off this domino effect, um, essentially where other studios began to follow suit and sort of saying, we can sort of, make our money, right? There's not a whole lot of regulations around streaming yet because it's fairly new. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're really concerned about ourselves and making our money back because we spent hundreds of million dollars into the Trolls movie and into Mission Impossible Part 64. <laughs> and we want to make that money back. And they're not thinking about the theaters. And then it causes this tumultuous relationship. So yeah, so AMC, one of the things I like what they said was, uh, you know, this is not an empty threat we mean this and you know uh, we'll just put a pin in that and we'll come back to it um but yeah i think it's interesting in an industry that's like this 
deregulated, just like a lot of industries are. Um, a lot just kind of happens on custom and you know what we're used to doing. And then when something happens, that's like, oh, we don't have to do this custom thing anymore. Let's just do what works best for our, you know, pro with our profit motive. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, curious, like, and we can come back to this as we move forward, but like, how do you as people who like movies feel about this? Cause I remember I had a lot of conversations with my friends, like, no, I like going to movie theaters. I don't want them to go away. Um, and so like for us, it was like, oh no, this is bad. But a lot of other people were excited because they don't have to go out and uh, it's just easier in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I have uh, I have a lot of feelings about this. One, I think, um, you know, what comes to mind first is that it signifies a shift in times. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, old, you know, Hollywood and Hollywood in general, the, the big issue that people were having is sort of trying to maintain this sense of the golden era of classical Hollywood and the way that we do things, right? Um, you know, we had, before COVID, you had Martin Scorsese make the critique against the Marvel film saying that this is an amusement park film. Yeah, um, You right. had other filmmakers say that we must hold on to the theaters. Um, and, and then now, you know, and then streaming coming up, now they suddenly have these overall deals with streaming platforms like Netflix and HBO and something like that. And now these sentiments don't exist anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so it's it signifies the shift in time of you really have to adapt. Hollywood is a business, right? It's a it's an industrial complex. Mm. Um, and it's not sort of, and while the COVID is sort of like the first time, right? It's unprecedented. And this is like the first time this sort of thing's happened. It's not the first time Hollywood has had to make these, you know, adaptations in order to maintain itself. We've seen a similar shift in how they, you know, manage themselves during the Great Depression era, um, you know, civil rights movement, and mm. so on and so forth. If you want to keep making money, you have to change with the times. That's true for any business. And so that's what's happening now. And we see studios like MGM, when you fail to sort of conform yourself to these more conventional, not conventional, contemporary ways of, of business and culture, then you get eaten by Amazon, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Yeah. The It's the way things have always been done is such a powerful, but like erroneous way of thinking about things. It holds like so much uh, influence over kind of the way we just see the world. Um, but so, yeah. So one thing that I thought was kind of, uh, just funny because I, I was reading a Variety article from back in April about this and they said uh, Universal is releasing Trolls World Tour on POV um, rather than wait for theaters to reopen, which is unlikely to occur until midsummer. And you read that you're like, oh, sweetie, that's really cute. Um, but yeah, so. It was so optimistic. I know. So fast forward to uh, December 3rd, 2020. Uh, you're kind of alluding to this, Brian. Uh, Warner Brothers makes an announcement that uh, all 17 of their uh, of the films in their 2021 programming schedule will be released on HBO Max simultaneously with, uh, with the theatrical release. Um, and everybody loses their shit. Because. And like different people lose their shit for different reasons. Yes. Because there's yeah. like, there's the 
creative side of this where like you know directors like you were saying brian martin scorsese is like this is how you do it i mean that's 100 percent not what he sounds like he sounds like the puffer fish from shark tale mm-hmm. um but he <laughs> for those who are unaware look up the imdb of shark tale a perfect film 10 out of 10 um but so he's mad for that reason christopher nolan um john blue I don't know the guy who's doing Dune but better now um (laughs) wow I'm just looking at Brian's face while he watches me try and like pronounce it just like vague French he's mad oh yeah sure (laughs) no 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 that's actually that's rude his name is Denis Villeneuve let's move on Julia is going to be so (laughs) okay you know what no Julia keep it keep it the French had it coming (gasps) whoa yeah I said it I remember colonialism (laughs) take that France I don't even know your names ha welcome back to Julia's thoughts from the editing room while Kim is correct in calling out France's colonial past the direct implication of my name in this attack will result in Kim's voice track being replaced by helium squawks for the next 30 seconds and remember don't fuck with your editors bisous are mad for their own reasons, but then you've got another very important legal reason to be upset, which is because all of these different studios are sort of like collecting their own streaming platforms, they're making deals across studios, or they're purchasing platforms, or they're creating their own, everybody wants to stream because they were like, oh, well, Netflix can't have our property, Um, but it is illegal, and very importantly so, since like some old shift from classical Hollywood studio system to like new Hollywood, et cetera, for studios to distribute their own films. There has to be a differentiation yeah. because otherwise it becomes a monopoly. And so that's one of the things that everyone's talking about at this time. It's like, okay, wait, is this even illegal? <laughs> Can they do that? Yeah. Does she even go here? Like what is happening? <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, if, if Universal sort of poked the bear, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with AMC and released Trolls World Tour on streaming, Warner Media really went up and like slapped the crap out of it. I don't know if I can curse on this podcast, so I'm trying to be hard not to. Oh, um, this is a family can. podcast, Brian. <laughs> How dare you? This is a family podcast in which I drop the F-bomb regularly. And where will we talk about so when I'll, we I'll have keep, sex I'll... with our parallel universe selves? Um, but, you know... So they slap the crap out of the bear. They mm-hmm. slap the bear and say, we're going to not release one, but uh, 21 movies on HBO Max, mm-hmm. um, you know, throughout the year. And that the people that get upset naturally, of course, are the theaters mm-hmm. who are like, you're killing us, mm-hmm. right? Universal stuck the knife in, Warner twisted the knife. Mm-hmm. How are we going to make our money back? And this is in December, 2020, right? So this is before vaccine, before any kind of conversations opening up. Like, it's like doom. Like, yeah. oh my goodness, how do you hate this much? Then you have, uh, you know, the the artists, the creatives, the directors and, yeah. and writers and people who have sort of, um, I guess, equity in the films who've negotiated in their contracts that they're going to get a certain percentage from distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
people like Christopher Nolan, who have the privileges <laughs> of negotiating. And then you have the agencies, right? So CAA, which is Creative yeah. Artist Agency, I believe is what it's called, who represents almost every famous person that you could probably think of in Hollywood and music and so on and so forth, activists, public speakers, um, who, who really say that you can't do this. Um, this is unethical. This is illegal, as Tim was saying. And we're going to be raising lawsuits because if there's no distribution, then our clients aren't getting paid. Mm -hmm. um, at least you have it clear how they're going to get paid. And if they're not getting paid, we're not getting paid. Um, and so you can't just do this because as Kim said, you're distributing your own film, you're maximizing your own profit, and there are already laws in place about that to prevent, you know, a monopoly mm -hmm. uh, in some So there's there's that problem. Yeah, I like this, uh, I like this situation we've got going on, on here because it's like a feud, a multi-directional feud where like, I just don't like anybody involved. It's like when people on a reality show and they're all horrible, horrible or yelling at each other. Like, I don't like Warner Brothers for like owning, like, you know, what is it? Uh, yeah, Warner Media for just owning everything. I don't like uh, AMC for like having bought up all of the small and regional theaters like 10 years ago and like essentially turning itself into its own kind of monopoly within this, in, within its industry. I don't really like the CAA. And I also, I think it's my gut reaction to the CAAs. I totally get their point, but it's funny because my first thought was like, you know, if Mark Ruffalo gets paid like $1 million instead of $10 million, hey, I'm hey, like- uh, The Mark Ruffalos of the world are struggling. I don't know why he I went there. I don't know why I went there. <laughs> America's dad and an Italian American sex symbol and you need to respect him. He is from Wisconsin and I do like that about him a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, and I don't like uh, Christopher Nolan at all. Uh, and so actually, but the reason that we keep on bringing him up specifically is because he has a, like, he was the one who like really loudly spoke out against this. And he has a quote that I think about every time I watch HBO, HBO Max, which I'm going to read now. Uh, Some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find uh, that they were working for the worst streaming service which I just really like because I imagine him like sitting in his home, like watching ballers and trying to be like, why do I have to, if I want to go to the next episode, go back to the main page. It's so stupid. Why can't I just like, it's so HBO Max sucks. Let's all just be real about that. Uh, so yeah, a lot of people. But I do love my free Matt. subscription. <laughs> Thank you, USC. Thank you, daddy, USC. <laughs> Not that we're complaining or anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, a lot of people are angry and, and, you know, Lord help the studio that pisses off Christopher Nolan, um, <laughs> and, and the cinema bros behind him. Cause he, Christopher Nolan can really rally a lot of people. Hashtag Snyder cut though. And that's, that's how everyone got into it. Mm. Now we're all pro streaming. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I do think it is interesting also that the the sort of compromise they say they struck is like okay well we're releasing them all same day on in theaters and on the streaming platform right. but what that does 
is create this really, really hilarious, like it's completely ingenuine and like I like I have no sympathy, but whenever actors are like, I just want to say like, please, please, please go to theaters or like, you know, <laughs> thank you so much for going to theaters. And this is actually uh, one of my favorite moments in which this happened, not during the world's worst Oscars presented to you by uh, Steven Soderbergh, yes. but I went with a group of folks to a movie theater the other day hey. um, to see A24's um, Zola, which is really good. It has nice. problems, but it's a it's a really good good film. Um, and so this whole group of us, we we're like wandering around the Chinese theater, and we're just like, "Is this our? I think this is. We couldn't find our like our actual theater spot, and we sit and we like wait through all the trailers. And we're like, the movie's starting really late, and finally the screen like the lights go down." And we're like, hell yeah, can't wait to watch this like Twitter stripper road trip movie. <laughs> and John Krasinski's face appears out of nowhere. And he's just saying like, hey, my name's John Krasinski. I directed A Quiet Place Part Two. I just want to say thank you so much for coming out to the, and we're all like, what the f <laughs> right now? Oh, see, I told you I would do it eventually, Brian. Uh, and that was how we realized that we had gone into the wrong theater. <laughs> Oh, and so we're, like a whole row. Like, oh, Kat, what do we do? We're all like, is, do they just play this before every movie now, or is it just a quiet place? And someone else is like, yeah, isn't this Zola? That's what my ticket says. And we're like, yeah. So we all shuffle with our like, because this is Hollywood and you can get beers at the movie. So we we're like shuffling with our beers, trying mm -hmm. not to spill down mm -hmm. the aisle and being like, oh, sorry, God, I just, yeah, we got to go. Wrong theater. My bad. Thanks, John. And we make it like five minutes to Zola. But so anyways, they're very into begging us to go to movies. And I right. do love the sort of like power dynamic where I can sort of stare down at John Krasinski. <laughs> Physically impossible. The man is a thousand feet right. tall. And just be like, oh, you want me to go see A Quiet Place Part 2? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it's got screening on Paramount Plus. That's uh, no additional charge. I don't know where it's screaming. Yeah. It's screening, but um, yeah, I think one of the things that, uh, because with the CAA, president wrote a letter to the CEO of Warner Media that I was reading. It's really long. I'm not going to read really any of it. But one thing that I, like, choice line that I, uh, I noted was, um, at one point, Warner Brothers took pride in the studio leaders' relationships with artists. Today, the only scarce resource in our business is talent. And I read that, and I was like, is it? Is talent scarce? Like, are there not a lot of deserving, talented people who deserve to have things? What do you, what does that mean? No, A-list celebrities are the only good actors. Did you not know that? <laughs> well, you can, yeah. Like, like, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not like in favor necessarily of just like A-list celebrities being like having their power decreased so that Warner Brothers power can increase. But like, I'm not quite sure how to feel about that uh, myself. Now, I think that's a whole, you know, uh, own Goliath of a conversation around mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, movie stars and sort of the power they hold and attracting audiences um, to films that, you know, also like play like this really important role in the question of, you know, is the, is the movie star an endangered species or, you know, are we just going to have regular actors acting things Oh, it's, barf. Yeah. <laughs> which is, which it's is the movie star and endangered species. 
which conveniently comes up, you know, as we're as everybody's having these conversations around diversifying more films. Now the question of talent seems to be in circulation, which is very underhanded um, mm. to me. Mm -hmm. But um, I I'm, I try my best not to spiral off in too many different <laughs> directions. Um, but essentially, like all of these things are working together at play um, and sort of colliding against one another. And there's just competition right mm -hmm. now. And it just feels like a race, right? Between the studios, between the streaming services um, and, and everybody in between. You know, Warner releasing all of their films or saying they're gonna release them for a little bit and then take them off and then put them back on or release them at the same time as the theater, you know, trying to dance their way out of lawsuits is a different response to Disney who's saying, we're gonna put ours on a streaming service as well, but we're gonna charge you $30. Yeah, yeah, wait, let's talk about that because that's, I think, a really interesting, like, like, do you put it on, Disney Plus was doing this, right? Like, do you put it on Disney Plus just at no additional charge or do you put it on Disney Plus for 20 or $30? Um, and like, you all obviously have to have a subscription to Disney Plus to watch it. This is one of the things that uh, I do think kind of ties back into Trolls World Tour because I personally hate the thought of buying, like renting something for $30, right? Like I didn't rent Mulan for $30 because for me, it's like, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. And I don't really watch movies with my roommates. So splitting it wouldn't make any mm. sense. But when you are Disney Plus and your main target is again, families, then that brings us back to like, oh, well, for a family, it's actually a really reasonable ask right. because, you know, you've got your 2.5 kids, they want the popcorn, et cetera, et cetera. So for them, it's like, yeah, that's either approximately how much I would pay or a deal. But on the other hand, does that work with movies for adults? Because I remember in probably around December, Jan no, not December at all, but at some point I was like, man, I really want to watch Promising Young Woman. Oh, it's $30. I guess I'm not going to watch Promising Young Woman. Mm -hmm. And then Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, starts getting advertised. And I was like, God, I want to watch that <laughs> so bad. I want to watch it so bad. Holy shit. Like Kristen Wiig and her co-writer for Bridesmaids mm -hmm. go to like, mm -hmm. like everything about this movie is perfect. And I want to watch it. And I still haven't seen it. And do you know why? It's because it came out just after Promising Young Woman, which I wasn't going to pay $30 for, but I would be a very bad feminist yeah. if I did not watch Promising Young Woman, but did pay $30 to watch Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. That. Yeah, that would be, it wouldn't it's not work. allowed. It would be, it, I would, yeah, I think they would take my pink pussy hat away or something. God forbid. Just canceled. I'm an God empowered forbid. woman, so I have to empower women. Yeah. <laughs> Kim is a girl boss. Let's just end the section there. Let's uh, fast forward to, um, to today, to the, the modern times. And uh, F9, the uh, universal picture, the ninth Fast and Furious movie, I keep calling it F9 in my head, releases in theaters, including AMC, uh, which, you know, uh, given the timeline, feels like a bit of a cuck move on AMC's part. Like they really said that they weren't gonna, like they weren't gonna do it. And now here they are just doing it. Well, that's how 
Universal got them. They were like, oh, oh, you're not gonna, you're not gonna show any of our movies. You're not gonna show Fast right. and Furious. Yeah. Yeah. Nine? No. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. And AMC backed off real yeah. quick. Yes. Real so... quick. They were like, okay, fine, release trolls online. I don't care. <laughs> the whole year has been AMC being like, okay, now I'm really upset, and. <laughs> Like, what are you gonna do, AMC? I'm very angry at you, but I still need to make money. And they realize that it's really difficult to make threats <laughs> when you don't have money, you need to make money. It's right. So what happened is that in uh, the feud, I love calling it a feud. These two giant corporations have a feud, you know? Um, uh, but like back in July, they like made an agreement uh, that NBC Universal's films must play in cinemas for at least three weekends or 17 days before they can be released on PVOD, uh, which I mean, so the industry standard previously had been 90 days. So that is a like, like that's a uh, not a great deal for uh for AMC, but also- Universal Studios just said, oh, broke bitch said what? Yeah. <laughs> there what? Was a, apparently though, this is a kind of weird, I don't quite get this. AMC, the CEO of AMC said in a statement that AMC is also gonna share in uh, the new revenue streams that will come to the movie ecosystem from PVOD. So like they are getting a cut of the money from, um, that's like on, or like the movies on PVOD, even though like they are at that point 100% not involved in the process. So I think that's like a bit strange, but like, okay, I guess I'm glad that you're still at the table AMC. I don't know, but um, uh, F9 did release in um, in theaters and it's, okay, it's, screen it's screening at con, which just feels like such a very weird thing, but whatever. Um, We're in dark time. Yeah. <laughs> What's Khan's major prize? Is it the Golden Golden Lion? The Golden Lion. Uh, no, 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 not the Golden Lion. Oh, okay. It's Venice. The Palm Door is uh, is Khan. Oh, but, the Pomodor. Um, but um, Vin uh, Diesel going for his second Pomodor. Let's <laughs> Palm Door. It's again. You're insulting the French. To oh, no am end. <laughs> I? I'm so sorry. Take that, Julia. <laughs> Um, Julia, thank you for all that you do for this podcast. Uh, but yeah, so F9, I stand by what I said. <laughs> My name is Kimberly Henry, and I really like France. Woo! F9 uh, has so far made uh, a profit, which like the other kind of big movie releases didn't. Like, I don't think Trolls World or like registered a profit or Wonder Woman 1989, but F9 had a budget, I looked this up, of like around 250 million. They've made 550 million so far and they, they're not streaming at all, uh, which sounds all right, but um, F8 or Fate, yeah, Sorry, I do like the titles of these movies. Um, Fate of the Furious. Fate of the Furious made uh, 1.2 billion. So like, Ooh. Eh, it's not great. Um, but yeah, people are kind of saying like now, okay, cool. So are movie theaters back? Are we just, was that whole thing just a fever dream? Or like, what now? Well, I one, I think there needs to be a serious 
critical study into the um, the death grip that Vin Diesel in this franchise <laughs> has on the world. Um, yes. Because it's, it's essentially the same movie each time, <laughs> but I guess people are, they enjoy simple pleasures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and something about fast cars blowing up, don't Just forget the, the buff, buff, bald men, really. The yeah. Very small butts in very small shorts. It's yes. just, that's 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 quite the franchise. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, I saw that it did make a profit. <laughs> and I was, um, and not just made a profit, but was like exceedingly excelling what the expectations were going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's honestly quite the anomaly to mm-hmm. me because I like, where are we going? Um, but also, like, even myself, I'm kind of like, I kind of want to watch it. Like, because, like, at this point, it's a meme on Twitter yeah. and on social media. And it's like, where, how further can you take this? Like, where can you go? And it's just out of sheer curiosity to see that such a, a film like this of Fast Night is part of this franchise is the thing that is saying, like, aha, like, streaming be damned back at the theaters this is getting butts in seats yeah um and and what does this mean you know for the studios are we going to keep going in the direction of more and more action films mm-hmm. um and less, less um sort of like i guess like art films you know rom-coms and things like that are those going to be mainly produced by streamers now like what what's really going on and it honestly seems like, and this goes back to even pre-COVID, where people were saying that where action films and superhero comic book films were sort of Hollywood's crutch to make money back in children's films, as Kim mm-hmm. said. That's um, really interesting, Brian. I hadn't considered or heard of that, like, potential track. Everything I've heard has been like, it's the apocalypse of cinema <laughs> and everything's on streaming or somehow movie theaters hold on. And I don't think I've heard anyone suggest yet like oh or streamers just do the lower budget films and or like lower budgets always will just be produced more by studios that lean more on streaming and then studios that rely more on movie theaters will go and do those massive big budget movies because that's the funny thing like Martin Scorsese can be upset he can be mad that like oh Marvel is a it's a like it's a theme park it's like a roller coaster it's not a film and it's like, do you know any, I mean, <laughs> I can't say, do you know anything about film history? Martin Scorsese having seen a grand total of, I think two of his films, <laughs> uh, but the history of cinema is a history of cinema of attractions at Tom mm-hmm. Gunn, what's up? I read mm-hmm. one paper about film history, but you know, it's about like the crutch of theaters has always been these like massive, yes movies yeah. that, that are like oh my goodness have you seen the new like like the new musical effects? yeah the, the new, new yeah like or yeah the new like giant like super widescreen um yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's always been about spectacle even when it was about stuff or like the limit of Hollywood's capabilities was not what we would consider spectacle at the moment it was always about spectacle mm-hmm. yeah I mean I think I was thinking about like what would because I like going to movie theaters and I don't particularly like 
uh, a lot of like big blockbuster movies. And so like, how does that for me, like my preferences, what does that kind of mean? And I was thinking about, you know, I do think that there is demand for, I don't know, more, uh, yeah, more indie movies to be shown in theaters because a lot of people like watching them on the big screen. And I think that in my, like, if I had to guess, I'd say that there's going to be sort of a, I don't know, just like a, maybe a return to kind of the art house mode or like more indie theaters for people. They're not, they can't be profit driven that much compared to like AMC, but you know, like uh, Quentin Tarantino buying um, the Vista theater and like, you know, I have complained very loudly about Quentin Tarantino on this podcast before, but I do, we do share a, uh, an interest in going to see movies in theaters. And so I, I respect him wanting to kind of curate that. And so I do think that there is a, a future for kind of like the non-blockbuster movie theater type thing. It just won't be quite the industry that it's been for the past several decades. Why do you think it's possible that the US could move to a model that a lot of other European countries have where they have state sponsored film like yes this film was paid for by like the <laughs> French arts yada yada um or you do you do um take uh-huh. that Julia oh my god is this racist like what, what are we doing when did I become like this you know, okay so like yeah. whatever state um funded cinemas like mm-hmm. state-funded theaters that do show these smaller films do you think that it's possible that we could move that way or are we too committed to like cowboys and capitalism um i i think i i think we might be a little too committed to capitalism mm-hmm. but um sure but a more sort oh, of answer is i actually think in my own views that sort of we have the capabilities to sort of um sidestep Hollywood in a way. I think in many ways, right, the reason why Hollywood is Hollywood, it has this, you know, massive money going through it, these, you know, incredible distribution possibilities globally, and it's what we know, right? It's mm-hmm. part of our culture, it's a part of history. And so even in very tumultuous, rocky times like this, you know, there's going to be some pull back and forth. You know, no one can say right now that this is the end of theaters and that streaming is gonna take off or that streaming is gonna take over because streaming has lots of problems on its own. And a lot of people are turned off from it. One of them being is that there are way too many and doing different things and their UX interfaces and everything like that sucks, except mm-hmm. now. But it's also at the same time, you know, we have the potential now with technology, with social media and advanced communications to you know, uh, have access to a cinema that's not produced in Hollywood. You know, we could mm-hmm. be supporting indie filmmakers to a greater extent than what we really are. Yeah. Um, you know, and through organized efforts, through crowdfunding and things like that. I mean, I think in the past year, if you haven't seen what the power of crowdfunding can do mm-hmm. in getting people resources to produce things, I mean, imagine that, like if you, you know, all these questions around diversity, all these questions around representation in film, if we simply put the money into the hands of the artists themselves, then what would we do, right? I think the pathway to that future um, is a possibility. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see that. Um, I think even if people just begin by just going to more like 
film festivals at their local theaters in general, like that would be huge. Mm -hmm. um, but because, you know, there's this competition in the industry for our attention, which is why we have these different streaming services, which is why we see these different sort of business collaborations happening um, and all this content being rapidly produced, seasons ending after two or three cycles of you know television series and stuff like that. You know, they're just trying to really just grab catch and grab our attention. Um, and it makes it really difficult to break out of that cycle, right? Mm -hmm. As we've been like conditioned, it's very easy to turn on my TV right now and then watch Netflix and watch something that has been produced in this like conglomerate system. Um, but if we divert our attention and efforts and, and money and distribute it into sort of like smaller non-industrial like type entities and creatives and stuff like that, we could have a completely different cinematic experience. And then what I think we'll could find hypothetically is that Hollywood would follow that. Hollywood goes where the people's monies go. And I always tell people you have so much more power over this industry than you think it is. When you stop paying for things, then people react. And that's part of the reason why COVID provided us with all these different reactions. You see how quickly the way these business models changed, how quickly, you know, even with social protests happening last year, these statements that they were putting out, how many more, you know, people of color and women got um, sort of provided into like different opportunities, like Issa Rae's overall deal with HBO Max, all of these wonderful people of color who've been nominated at the Emmys. Um, look how quickly it happens when you yeah. have a huge disruption like that. Um, so I think the key to having any sort of change, whether towards what Kim was saying in terms of like state-funded local theaters, things like that, is by first being aware of your own power as a consumer um, in, this, in this country, is that you can simply stop paying for something. Um, and suddenly, rich people are like, what happened? We had a good thing going. <laughs> And then the behavior changes very quickly. So I think that's something very important that people should take note of out of this time. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. I mean, absolutely. I feel like one of the sort of issues with focusing so much on the dominance of Hollywood is that if you just focus all your attention on that, it starts to feel like, oh, well, there's nothing else, right? And it's like, no, of course there's other stuff. There are all these film festivals that are happening. People who like, deserve to have their work seen and and it's being shown places and it's you know it's just you have to be aware that this is actually not the only thing and you're completely right um a sort of a a uh, a positive uh way to they say there's no ethical consumption under capitalism but brian is here to tell you actually spend your money <laughs> where it is deserved I don't know. I feel like none of that was as articulate as what Hashtag you just said. Brian Smith capitalist. <laughs> is that Brian Smith is a capitalist? Yes. Um, I think if there's one title thing, of the episode. Yes. And send me all of your money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fund me. Crowdfund Brian. <laughs> and Kim, if you want also, I don't know. Um, all right. Well, with that, I think uh, we will wrap it up. Brian, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us about all of this uh, industrial stuff. As usual, I am 
not ending this on a strong note. I feel like we should just probably cut it after. <laughs> Woo, fade out. Music fades <laughs> up. Thanks, yeah. Julia, or whoever is editing this. Thank you, Julia. Merci beaucoup. Je t'aime. Je ne parle pas français, Julia. Wow. I don't know French, but Julia, I'll see you in LA. Thank you for having me on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having the conversation with me. Um, and I hope everyone keeps all these things in their mind. And I'll see you all in person. At so some soon. Point. So soon. Media Literate is a collaborative podcast produced by Colton Elsie, Sebastian Bertzreiner, Laura Broman, Kim Henry, and Julia Rose Camus. This episode was edited by Julia. Our theme music is Soft Feeling by Jill, and our logo was created by Julia. Remember to give us a like on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show.